was flipping through the channels the other day, and I, was, I just landed on a news station, and there's like this reporter doing man on the street interviews, so I'm like, okay, this looks interesting. He's talking to an immigrant, and he was saying, how's it going? The guy said, I'm applying for uni United States citizenship, and he, so he says, so the reporter asked him, well, how's that process going? He said, I was doing great until I got to the civics portion of the exam, and I failed. I've got to go back and take it again. And so the reporter said, well, what kind of tripped you up as you were doing this test? And the, uh, the guy said, well, I didn't know how many members there were in Congress, like in the, the Senate and the House of Representatives. And the reporter goes, I don't think I know that. To which then I'm sitting on the couch, I'm feeling all smug, like, oh, guys, come on, there's like 100 in the Senate, and there's like 435 in the House of Reps, so there's like 535. Wait a minute, do they include the, the non-voting delegates from the District of Columbia and the territory? I, so I have to Google it myself. I'm like an American citizen. I don't know this. Which got me to thinking, if you were not already an American citizen, could you become one? <laughs> you know, could, could, do I have what it takes to become a citizen? Do you, do you know, here's the, the test for you, do you know the three ways you become an American citizen? Number one, you're born on American soil. Two, one or both of your parents are American citizens. Or three, you go through the Immigration process, right. So that's how you become an American, which then kind of got me to think about another question. Do you know how you become a Christian? Like, if you had to become one, you, or you just somebody asked you, would you know what to say? I think if you were to ask 100 different people, what does it take to become a Christian? You probably get 95 different answers, right? I just know from my own conversations with people, like, well, how do you become a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? I've had people tell me this. Well, I am an American, America is a Christian country, therefore I am a Christian, right? I've had people, kind of the variation on that is, yeah, I was like, day one, my parents had me in church. I've been a Christian my entire life. Like, I, I was born and raised in church. I've always been there. I'm a Christian because my parents, my grandparents, it's just our family. We're just all Christians. Or, like, my parents had me sprinkled when I was a baby, or I, I went down front and I prayed that prayer, or I raised my hand, and, or I, you know, I was baptized, or whatever. I've just always been a Christian. I've had other people tell me, like, you know, I, I'm a good person, and hopefully my good outweighs my bad. So in their mind, they kind of equate good person equals Christian, so yeah, I'm a Christian. So what do you think? How do you become a Christian? Is it something you're born into? Kind of like if you're born in a Buddhist family, you're just naturally Buddhist. If you're born in an Islamic family, you're naturally a Muslim. If you're born in a Christian family, of course you're a Christian because you're just born into it. Is it something you have to choose? Is it like American citizenship? you got to do something? How does that work? Is it like, okay, if I'm a good person, I must be a Christian? But if, how would you answer that question is very important. And I want to take the next two weeks, this week and next, to, to, to answer that question about what does it take to be a Christian? How do you become one? For one thing, my assumption is, even as many people as are here today, that there's always going to be people at Connection who would say, I'm not a Christian. And they're just very forthright with that. I'm a seeker. I'm interested in finding truth. I'm interested in what you guys believe. I'm looking over the fence. I'm investigating. It would be my prayer that we'd have people like that here every week. So if that's your story, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Our whole purpose as a church is to connect people to God and each other through Jesus. So we always want to have people here who are seeking and say, I'm not a Christian, but I want to know more. For some of you, the, the answer to that question is, how do you become a Christian? You're like, I don't know. I, don't, I know I am one, but I don't know that I could speak intelligently on it. I, if somebody asked me, how do you become a Christian? I don't think I could tell them. So maybe this message series is for you, just to speak about your faith and to articulate that a little more clearly, the pathway. And, and really, with all the different viewpoints that are out there about how you become a Christian or what it means to be a Christian, I think maybe it would be a good time just for all of us to get on the same page. Because really, honestly, 
there are a lot of traditions in different churches that have sprung up about how you become a Christian, what that looks like, what the pathway is. For us, I would just like to go back to this, to the Bible, and just say, at the beginning of all things, what does this say God wants us to do if we want to become a follower of Jesus, if we want to become a Christian? The, you know, there's a saying that says a river is purest at its source. So why don't we just go back to the source and, and not dismissing anybody's experience and what tradition or what your pastor or your parents taught you, but why don't we just say, what does the Bible teach about becoming a Christian? Because I know over time there's all these different ways of doing things that have developed up. I know that it's created a lot of confusion among people. Like, well, this church says that you should raise your hand and pray this prayer, and this church sprinkles, and this church immerses, and this church doesn't do anything. How do you become a Christian? I know it creates a lot of confusion. Like, if you Christians can't even agree with each other, why should I even become one? So again, I think we can all agree at least on this. So as a church, that's kind of what we do with everything. We want to say if the Bible speaks to it, we'll say what the Bible says. If the Bible doesn't say anything about it, we'll try to do our best to figure it out, and we'll just have a lot of grace with each other. But in everything, we want to say, what does the Bible teach us about this? So we're going to stick to the Bible. And today, you know, I'm going to do my best to teach the Bible, but I don't want you to go out of here and say, well, Brian says. I don't want you thinking about what it means to become a Christian and say, well, my parents said, or my grandparents, or my favorite pastor, or that guy on TV. I want you to be able to walk out of here and say, the Bible says, this is how you become a Christian, a Christ follower. Now, if you say, well, I don't even know where to go in the Bible to find that, I want to help you with that. In the Bible, there's a book called Acts. It is the history of the early church, a matter of a few decades. So if you turn in your Bible to Acts, we tried to make sure everybody had one, or at least the opportunity to have a Bible. You want to turn to Acts chapter 2. If you took one of the Bibles that we were giving away on the way in, it's page 770. There is no shame in going to the table of contents to look it up. That's awesome. Just find it however you can find it. We're going to go through Acts. What I want to do is, because this is an eyewitness accounting of how the church began, I want to go through it because there are several eyewitness accounts of conversion stories. So I just want to go a conversion account by conversion account and say, what does the Bible show people doing when they became a Christian? So we're just going to kind of walk through this today. It's a little bit of a Bible study. Now what we're going to find is, as people came to Christ, their starting points were all over the map. Spiritually speaking, I mean, even literally, people from all over the place and all different backgrounds came to a, a knowledge of Jesus, they came to a, a faith in him. And even though they started in so many different places, they all ended up in the same place. What we're going to find is in every recorded conversion in the book of Acts, the response of the person converting to Jesus was exactly the same. They all expressed their belief in Jesus through baptism in water. You can write that down if you're taking notes. Every conversion in the book of Acts started with belief in Jesus and it ended with baptism in water. Hopefully you got your Bible open to Acts chapter 2 because we're going to go pretty fast here. I'm just going to go page by page. You can take notes if something makes you want to think about it further or something you want to ask about later. And so I want to just look at what, what does the Bible say about becoming a Christian. You know, again, not what I say, not even what our elders of our church or your parents or some preacher somewhere said or some Bible teacher, as much as we respect all of them. What does the Bible say? So we start in Acts chapter 2, and this is where the church began. We know exactly what day the church started. It was 2,000 years ago. It was in Jerusalem. It was on the day of Pentecost, which is a Jewish feast. People from all over the world who were Jewish had traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate this. So anytime the Passover in the early spring, followed by Pentecost 50 days later, happened, Jerusalem would grow by hundreds of thousands of people. People would maybe make this trip for once in a lifetime because it's so far and such a great expense. So people would come all over who were Jewish, come celebrate at the temple, so you've got Passover. This was the year that Jesus was crucified on Passover. 
50 days later, the Jewish people are still in Jerusalem celebrating Pentecost, which is 50 days after Passover. And it's at this point that Peter and the other apostles are gathered in a house together. The Holy Spirit of God descends on them, and it's this phenomenon where there's this sound like a tornado. And it wasn't just they that heard it, because everyone in all the homes and all the buildings around it like come out in the street, and they're like, where's the tornado damage? We heard this huge wind. Where's the damage? And there's no damage. They just find Peter and the other apostles, and they're all speaking in different languages. And some of the people are like, oh, these guys are babbling on. They're drunk. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. It's only 9 in the morning. That's too hardcore for even us. So Peter and the other apostles, Peter starts preaching the gospel. He says, I bet you're wondering why God called this meeting. And he starts preaching down in verse 22. And he says, men of Israel. And understand, there are thousands of people listening to this message. And he says, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Now, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, the Romans, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. This just happened a month and a half ago. They saw it. They were part of it. Verse 24, Peter goes on and keeps preaching. He says, but God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died, buried, and he rose again. Verse uh, 32, chapter 2. Peter went on and he says this, God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to the fact. Peter and the other apostles, we saw it. We're eyewitnesses. We're not telling you about something we heard from somebody who heard and his cousin. No, we saw him alive. Over 500 of us at one point were together, and we saw Jesus alive. We're eyewitnesses. And then Peter wraps up the sermon. He's preaching to these thousands of people, and he says this in verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Kind of a dangerous thing to say, don't you think? Yeah, we killed Jesus. We're going to kill you too. That's not the response of the people. They believed Peter when he said, you know, God sent the Messiah, and you killed him. In Acts chapter 3, Peter would say in a different sermon, you killed the author of life. Way to go, guys. How did they respond to this? Verse 37, they believed him. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? You want to talk about that uh uh-oh feeling, that sinking in your stomach? They've got it. We've been waiting for thousands of years for the Messiah, the Christ, to come. And when he came, we killed him. What do we do? Peter says, here's what you do if you want to make things right with God. Verse 38, repent, change your way of thinking, repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you want to know what it takes to become a convert of Jesus Christ, here it is right here, repent, be baptized. And it says on down in verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized you believe this? If you think we're telling the truth, be baptized. They were. How many were baptized that day? 3,000 people. Imagine how long that would take. 3,000 people. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes, I do. You're baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Receive the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people that day accepted Jesus Christ. It was an amazing response. This is where the church started. It was on that day in Jerusalem. If you want to become a follower of Jesus, you were baptized. Here's the interesting thing to me. They didn't go to a class first. They didn't go home and talk to their family about what they should do. They didn't wait for a private moment where there was no one else around, just them. They didn't even come to the temple that day expecting to do anything like this. 
They came to the temple that day, they hear a message about Christ, and they left dripping wet. Because when they believed in Jesus, they followed through. Their conversion started with belief and trust in Jesus Christ, and it ended in the water. They expressed their acceptance of the message of Christ by repenting and being baptized immediately. Immediately. And that's the pattern we're going to see through the rest of the book of Acts. I can just tell you right now, you're going to see this over and over. Go ahead and take your Bible, turn over to Acts chapter 8. The scene shifts from Jerusalem, and we're going to go north now to Samaria, just a little, a few hundred miles north. Philip the evangelist has gone to Samaria. This is a place where the people are half Jewish, half not. Um, they're kind of a mixed race people. Philip goes up there, and he starts preaching the gospel to the Samaritans in the city of Samaria. Now, in this city, there's this guy named Simon the sorcerer that's really got everybody's attention. He's wowed everybody, people great and low. They all follow Simon the sorcerer. Look down at verse 11 of chapter 8. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But then verse 12, But when they believed Philip, the evangelist, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. And as you see here, if you go back to, to verse 12 again, People who responded to the message of Jesus, they believed, in, they believed Philip, what he said, they believed about Jesus. They were baptized, men and women. And so they followed their belief up with immersion. Now, I, I want to stop a moment here because I believe this is where this story intersects with a lot of our stories because I believe a lot of us in the room here, we accepted Christ. Many of us, we accepted Christ at an early age, but at the same time, our story doesn't exactly read like this. I got to thinking about this. No show of hands, you don't have to, you know, whatever, but how many of you just say it in your mind? How many would you say, I was sprinkled or baptized as a baby or as a little child? Certainly you'd say my story is that my parents had me baptized before I even knew what that meant. I, I kind of did the math in my mind. I'm thinking here at Connection, it's like 50, 60, 70% of us say that's my story. That's my story. My, my parents weren't always churchgoers when I was young, but there was a phase where we went to church and my parents had me sprinkled. It meant absolutely nothing to me. There was no faith in Christ or anything. It's just something that, that we did. My parents told me to do. I don't know if it's four or five years old. And so if, if that's your story, just understand, I don't mean any condemnation or criticism by this, because there are a lot of churches that practice sprinkling or even baptism for babies. But I want you to know something. That is not a biblical practice. And what I mean by that is, you never find infant baptism or infant sprinkling either uh, done in the Bible, nor do you ever see it commanded in the Bible. If you look at the account here, the norm was that men and women, people old enough to make the decision to accept Christ, were baptized. In fact, if you just think about this logically, can a baby make the decision to accept Christ? Because the order we see in the Bible is that you accept Christ, you repent, then you're baptized. What does a little baby have to repent of? What does a little child, what sins do they have that they need to turn away from? They, they don't. The biblical order, again, not to criticize anybody's experience. Please don't think I'm doing that. God bless our parents who did what they needed to do and, and thought was right to raise us in the Lord. But the biblical model is that first you accept Christ and then you express that obedience to him by being immersed in water. And so that's the way. It's done and in the Bible times. That's the way we want to do things here at Connection Christian Church because we want to be a church that does Bible things in Bible ways. So the question I would just ask you to wrestle with is, have you shown your acceptance of the message of Jesus Christ through your own will, 
through your own volition, have you chosen to be immersed in the way that Jesus asked you and commanded you to do as his followers? Just something to think about. Well, you continue on in Acts chapter 8, and the pattern continues. Philip is up in Samaria, and, and God says, I got another job for you, Philip. So an angel of the Lord goes to Philip and says, you need to get down to the road that goes from Jerusalem down to Gaza. So Philip goes, and he ends up on the road. He doesn't have any idea what he's doing there until he gets there. <coughs> Excuse me. And so as he's there, he sees a chariot go by, and in the chariot is an Ethiopian official who's been in Jerusalem worshiping God. He's going back to Ethiopia where he works for the queen of Ethiopia. And as he's in his chariot, he's a God worshiper. He's reading from the prophet Isaiah. And as Philip comes alongside his chariot, he recognizes this guy's reading Isaiah the prophet. So Philip says, hey, buddy, you know what you're reading? Do you understand it? And the guy's like, the Ethiopian's like, how can I understand it if I don't have somebody explain it to me? Philip says, this is your lucky day. I'm a Bible teacher. So the guy says, come on up in my chariot. Explain this to me. So you read down here in chapter 8, in verse 35, then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told the Ethiopian the good news about Jesus. It just so happens that he was reading from Isaiah the prophet a section that talked about Jesus. So Philip started there. He preached the gospel to this guy. And in verse 36, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he ordered the chariot to stop. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. So I want you to notice something here. All the scripture tells us that Philip did is he told him the good news about Jesus. Apparently, something about the teaching and the preaching of the gospel of Jesus includes the message about baptism, because the eunuch's the one who says, look, there's water. What's keeping me from being baptized? And then I want you to notice something else. They went down into the water for this baptism. In the Bible, anytime you see the word baptize or baptism, it is a Greek word that we've just made an English word out of. It literally means to put something underwater, to submerge something, to sink like a ship, to plunge underwater. And so you don't have to be a Greek scholar here to get this, though, because it says they went down into the water, they came up out of the water. When we talk about baptism, every baptism in the Bible was a baptism of immersion. It was not a sprinkling. That came about later. It's one of the traditions that developed in church history much later, but it was not a biblical practice to sprinkle. That came about later. And so I told you, sprinkling was part of my story. Um, I came to faith in Christ later. I actually did decide I want to be a follower of Jesus. And at that time, I made the decision very personal, and I said, I'm going to follow through. I'm going to be baptized. And so on December 12th, 1976, I was immersed into Jesus Christ. I can look back and say in that moment, I made a decision that I'm all in for Jesus, a decision, by the way, I've never, ever regretted, never, ever wanted to take back. But I can say in that moment, in the same way I can say on October 10th, 1992, Kirsten and I were married, I can say on December 12th, 1976, I put my faith in Christ. I may have been learning about him all before. I may have loved him and followed him. But in that moment, I could say I was obedient to him. And the first thing that he asked me to do, the first thing that he commanded as his follower, and I did it. My decision. Have you done that? Well, let's keep going because we're going to run out of time if we don't. There's a lot of conversions here, and we're not going to get through all of them anyway. But the next person I want you to look at is in Acts chapter 9. I want to show you how the Apostle Paul became a Christian. Now, the Apostle Paul, his friends, his Jewish friends would have known him as Saul. And earlier in his career, he was not in any way associated with Christ at all other than to say, 
uh, to hunt down Christians. In fact, he made it his goal to eradicate this Christian faith before it really got started. He went around all over Jerusalem, and Saul says part of his story was that he would arrest Christians, put them in prison, and then when they were executed, he was there giving the thumbs up. Not a great guy. He even decided to take his show on the road. He found out there were some believers, some Christians up in Damascus, Syria, and he's like, guys, let's go get them. So he gets some papers, and he goes, and he's on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians and put them in prison and kill them when he has a literal come-to-Jesus meeting. Jesus like meets with him right there on the road to Damascus. There's this blinding light, and all of Saul and all of his companions fall to the ground. They can't see a thing, and Saul hears this voice. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, this is down in verse uh, 5, and he, Saul's like, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Now, Saul, get up. Go in the city, and I'll tell you what to do. <coughs> so Saul goes into the city of Damascus. He's still blind. His companions had to lead him in. Then Jesus goes, and in a vision, he appears to a Christian in Damascus, a guy named Ananias. And he says to Ananias, I want you to go to Straight Street here in town. I want you to look for a guy named Saul, and I want you to preach the gospel to him. And Ananias gets a little nervous about this. And I, Have you ever done this? you ever like tried to give God information because you don't think he knows something? Ananias is like, Jesus, seriously? Isn't that the guy who's like hunting down Christians and killing them? You, you really think this is a good idea? And Jesus is like, hey, enough of that. I'm going to show him how much he has to suffer for my name, but you just need to go and preach the gospel to him. So Ananias goes to Straight Street. He starts asking around, where's Saul? You come down to verse 17. Ananias went into the house and he entered it. And placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, it says, Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, which is kind of gross. But then he could see again. He got up and he was baptized. And in Acts twenty-two sixteen, Paul was telling his testimony. He said, Ananias said to him, Saul, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized, washing away your sins. And so he did that. He got up and he was baptized. Verse 19 here. After taking some food, he regained his strength. I love this. Saul, for three days, he's in Damascus. He's not eating. He's not doing anything. He's just praying. He's like, how could I have been so wrong about God? How could I have killed all those people in the name of, of God, and yet they were truly following God? How could I have been so wrong about Jesus? And yet Jesus forgives him. Jesus gives him a new start, gives him an entirely new mission. In fact, I think it's fair to say that we are here today because of the work of the Apostle Paul. And so God says, I'm not done with you, but you need to repent. You need to be baptized. And Saul was. He didn't even eat. He hasn't eaten for three days. And the first thing he does is he gets baptized immediately to show his new direction in his life. And so he did that. Well, we go on. I want to show you at least one more account. If you move on to the chapter 10, this is a huge turning point. As we see a Roman centurion named Cornelius and his entire family become Christians. Huge turning point in the book of Acts because up to this point, the only people who have become Christians are Jewish people or Samaritans who are half Jewish. At this point, the scene shifts, and the big question is, will God let Gentiles like us into the church? And the answer is yes. Peter, the apostle Peter, is sent to go preach to Cornelius. Peter starts preaching the gospel to these Italians. Apparently, he preached a little too long. He's not getting to the point because God just goes ahead and throws the Holy Spirit on these Gentiles. And so Peter says this down in verse 47, Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Again, we see the pattern here. They believed in Jesus. 
and they were baptized. <coughs> if time went on, we could go to Acts chapter 16 where the Apostle Paul's on a mission trip. He goes to the city of Philippi in Greece, meets a woman uh, down by the river. Her name's Lydia. They're at a place of prayer there. Paul's teaching about Jesus. Lydia is a very wealthy woman, a dealer in purple cloth from Thyatira. And she and her family accept the Lord. They're baptized right there in the river on that Sabbath day where Paul taught them. And then she opens her home up and says, come stay with me. We could go on and we could see a jailer there in Philippi who was baptized at 2 in the morning with his entire family because he accepted Christ right then. He believed and right then he expressed that belief in baptism. We could keep going on and on and on. But I want you to see this, the pattern in the book. And I encourage you to do this. Don't just take my word for it. Go on through Acts and you'll see over and over and over the pattern of somebody converting to Jesus Christ. It's always the same. They believe in Jesus. They repent and change the direction of their life. They are baptized out of obedience to him. They are immersed in the water. That's the pattern. That's how you become a Christian. You want to say, I'm in? This is what the Bible says you do. Remember the comedian Yakov Smirnov? Remember him? Guy from Soviet Russia who came to the United States? Funny guy. He, he said when he came to the States, he was in no way prepared for the affluence and just the abundance that he saw. Like in an American grocery store, he said, I walk in the grocery store and you guys got powdered milk. You just add water and you got milk. Amazing. Powdered orange juice, you just add water and you got orange juice. Amazing. Powdered eggs, you just add water and you got eggs. And then I saw baby powder. <laughs> what a country you guys have here. You know, on one extreme, I think some people take the mistaken belief that all you need to do is take a sinner, just add water, and you got a Christian. Poof, it's like magic. Just the, you know, just got to get them into the baptistry. And I honestly would understand if you would say, you know, with all this emphasis you're putting on baptism today, it sounds kind of like you're saying that, just like kind of like it's elfin magic. Just get somebody baptized and they're good, right? No, not saying that. That's actually a doctrinal teaching, uh, an incorrect one, called baptismal regeneration, that there's somehow something about the baptism itself, like it's magical or that it saves you, and that's not what we teach at all. That's not what the Bible teaches. If you take that position to its natural conclusion, that sounds a whole lot more like magic or mysticism. It doesn't sound like some kind of a relationship with God, like the starting point. You know, I, I don't know that I would want to be the guy who just says, well, no matter what I do in my life and no matter what I do with Jesus, I got wet, so therefore I'm good with God. Do, do you really want to stand before God Almighty on that day and say, yeah, got to let me in because I'm dripping wet. See, I'm wearing my flip-flops still. I'm good, right? You really think God's going to go, I had my doubts about you and I really was not going to let you in, but you got me. You got baptized. So yeah, I got to let you in. Really think that's going to work? <coughs> I wouldn't count on that. In fact, if all it took to get people into heaven and get into a right relationship with Jesus was just get them baptized, we'd get our biggest guys in church. Randy, are you up for this? Jim, Kyle, just go tackle people, drag them into the baptistry and dunk them. I don't care if you accept Jesus or not. You'll thank me later, right? Get under the water so you can get into heaven. It doesn't work like that. You don't just add water and get a Christian. <coughs> the forgiveness of your sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, becoming a Christian, it takes more than baptism. But if you read the Bible with just an open mind and just simply read it without any preconceived ideas, it is impossible to escape the conclusion that baptism is a part of your conversion experience. As you look over and over and over, people accepted the message and then they were immersed. The Apostle Peter was talking about this, <coughs> excuse me, in 1 Peter chapter 3. 
<coughs> and he talks about how Noah, in the days of the flood, built an ark, and that he and his family, eight people, were saved in the ark. And then he compares it to baptism. He says this in verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but he says it's not like that. It's not magic, but it's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. <coughs> it's your faith in Jesus Christ that saves you. It's not the baptism. Let's put it this way. <coughs> if I can get through this. It's not the baptism. It's not that the baptism is how you get saved. It's not how you get forgiven of your sins. It's through your baptism. That's when you become a Christian. That's when your sins are forgiven. That is when you seal the deal with Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, some people still will ask, though, do I have to be baptized to be saved? Is that really something I have to do? And I would think, like, why would you ask that question? If, if your Lord and Savior says, do this, he's your boss. Why not just do it? It's honestly the first, and it's the easiest thing that Jesus will command you to do. So if you're already at that point, and you've never done this before, why not just be obedient to him? Just do it. You know, a few weeks ago, Duck Dynasty made ratings history. I don't know if any of you watched Duck Dynasty, but it, the season four just broke all the viewing records. It's great. Even if you don't watch Duck Dynasty, you probably know who this guy is. Phil Robertson, is he up there? You know this guy, Phil Robertson? You may know that he and his family are devout Christians. What you may not know is for the first 28 years of Phil's life, though, he was anything but a Christian. He was a wild guy. He says he was a womanizer. He said that he was a, a lawbreaker. For the first part of his life, it was so rough. He said after 10 years of marriage, Kay just had enough. His wife, she took the kids and she left. It took him about three months to get so miserable he couldn't take it anymore. He came to where she was and she said, this guy, this big macho guy who's never cried before, he's crying and... He said, I can't eat, I can't sleep, I'm miserable, you've got to come home. I want my family back. And she said, Phil, I'd love to take you back, but you can't do this on your own. It's bigger than you. You're going to need some help here, buddy. And Phil's like, you're talking about God, right? And she's like, yeah, we need God's help. Well, he was willing to do anything to get her back, so she struck while the iron was hot. She got the pastor in her church to meet with Phil. The pastor walks in, and Phil looks at him, the first thing he says is, I don't trust you. Pastor said, if I was running around with people like you're running around with, I wouldn't trust anybody either. But then pastor said, do you trust this? Do you trust the Bible? Phil said, yeah, I trust that, but I don't take any man's word for anything. So what the pastor says, well, let's just study the Bible. For the next few hours, they studied the Bible. And Phil said, as the pastor was leaving, I'm going to look through everything you said, because, I, again, I don't take any man's word for anything. The pastor said, check it out. Apparently it checked out, because the next day, Kay came home, and she found a note from Phil that said, Meet me at the church. And she and the kids got to church just in time. As they walked in, Phil was in the baptistry. And the pastor was taking his confession of faith in Jesus Christ. And they got to see their dad, their husband, baptized. I love the way Phil said it. He said, for the first 28 years of my life, I didn't know the gospel and I didn't know Jesus Christ. He says, now I'm trying to make up for lost time. That's what it looks like to repent. That's what it looks like to come to Jesus Christ and put your trust in him. What do you do? You believe, you repent, you're immersed into him. So, kind of begs the question, though, because a lot of us have a story that's different than that, and no blame, and it's maybe the way we were raised, but what do you do if you say, well, I am a Christian, 
but that's not my story. I wasn't taught to do that. I never knew that. Like, I have a different pathway than where I got to now. I am a Christian. I love Jesus, but I've never been immersed. What do you do with this? My invitation to you would be, do the next right thing that you know to do. Your Lord and Savior asks you to do this, so do that. In fact, this is such a, a, a level of commitment that, that we think Jesus asks us of that, that we as leadership of the church, the elders, have said that anyone who wants to place membership here, we ask, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ but you've not been immersed, please do this. And it's not that we're saying this is a requirement for membership. We're saying that your Lord asks you to do this. He commands you to do this. So be obedient to him. Do the right thing. Set the right example. Do it out of respect to him. And I'll say this to you. If you're like, I really don't think I need to. I don't want to. But, man, if you guys insist, all right, I'll do it because you say I have. Hey, don't even bother if that's your attitude. That's really not the right attitude to go into this with. You're not throwing God a bone here. You're not doing him a favor. God does this for your benefit. You don't know how special and sacred a baptism by immersion by your own choice could be if you've never done it. It's that moment you can look at, like in many ways, this, the day that you say, I'm going to express my love and commitment to my spouse and say, I do, and we're going to exchange rings. And you kind of be a little skeptical if your spouse is like, I really don't want to get married, and I don't really want to wear a ring, but if you insist, okay. Really? I mean, where's the love there? If your Lord and Savior who loves you and died for you says, this is a good thing and I ask you to be immersed, why not just be obedient to him? Man, I know maybe there are some of you who say, I've never done that because I'm just not a Christian. Maybe today is the day that you come to Jesus and say, you're my Lord and I'm committing to you and I need to be baptized. And once you know the time to do that is the time that God's put it in your heart. You don't have to wait. Uh, we can baptize at any time. We have a church that's available to us at any time. It's just around the corner from here, and we can baptize any time, including today. Let me pray for you right now, and then I have one more thing to say to you. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, thank you that you've given us your word. You give us very clear example and teaching. Thank you for the gift of salvation. You didn't have to save us at all. You could have just left us to the consequences of our sins, and that would have been just. But you are a God of love, and you want to forgive us. So thank you for that pray that we would always just be so grateful for the love you have for us. I pray that we would be obedient children. And Father, I know this is a difficult issue because we have so many pathways that have brought us to you and so many of us for our lives have loved you, but we maybe didn't know to do this. And for some of us, maybe this is a first step to be becoming a part of your family. I pray that today, Father, you give us boldness and strength to do the next right thing. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if this is a decision you need to make, I'd love to talk to you after church or uh, talk to one of our elders. And again, we have baptistries available at any time. If you'd like to think more about this and talk more about this, we have a baptismal forum. It's not really a class. It's just a forum where you can come ask questions today at 2 o'clock at the office or this week. The information's in your bulletin. If you need to talk more about this and ask questions, I understand. Just avail yourself of these opportunities and do the next right thing, would you?